And if I could have your attention, welcome to School of Theology. We are going to be we are going to be studying this semester the Trinity. Um, and <laughs> I hope that you're here uh, to learn a lot uh, because I know that's actually going to happen. I'm looking forward to being in the class. I, I think Brian allowed me to teach a couple of sessions, and I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, but it would be good for you to understand kind of how this fits. Um, we believe strongly here at Sunnybrook that we are to love Jesus uh, and, and, and God his Father with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. And we really take that seriously. Um, I know that some people say that education is, uh, is, is not as valuable as some people want to say it is because you've heard people talk like this, right? Yeah, you just have all this knowledge. Yeah, you just have all this knowledge. And I want to say, I get it. The Apostle Paul even says what? That knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So we want to be aware that there can be something dangerous about knowing and knowing and knowing and not responding. But I don't think the answer is just not knowing. Um, one of the great lines of, um, uh, on this particular topic is made by... Uh, one of the gentlemen that was involved in making a critical edition of the Greek New Testament back in the 1500s named Erasmus. And Erasmus was asked the question, how can scholarly knowledge facilitate a better understanding of God? To which he responded, well, I don't know. Tell me how ignorance would contribute to it. <laughs> And I like that, actually. I, I, I read that in a book. I've got it underlined. I could take it to it right, do right now. And I've thought a lot about that, which means that the answer to the question is not ignorance. But it is, I would argue, applying our heart and our mind to everything, our whole soul to everything. And so uh, that's kind of where the school of theology has come from. We care deeply, not just about learning and not just about becoming eggheads. We really don't. Um, I would even pray that none of us here, I'll give you some words from my alma mater, uh, some men that have influenced me deeply. One of them said to me, you need to get as much education as you can keep sanctified. And so that's a, that's a big deal for me. Get as much education as you can keep sanctified, meaning keeping it under the governance of the Holy Spirit, which protects against puffing up. And it really teaches me to love. Um, the second thing that somebody said to me um, was actually, uh, that was my mentor. This was somebody that we were both mentored by together. My, my good friend Doug at the college says this now, as the, now that he's the academic dean. He challenges the students at the college there to never allow their education to exceed their character. That's a good reminder, isn't it? I like that. Never let your education exceed your character. Because here we are not just about knowing things, but we are about knowing the God of the universe, the one who loved us, the one who made us, the one who has redeemed us. And so that's really what this is all about. And so we do not believe at all that just coming to church and, and on, on Sunday morning where we worship God and we do spend a little bit of time in God's word and being challenged and motivated together as the body, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I just have never felt it as enough. And so I have just loved this church for its love for God by giving him our mind completely. And that's really what we're here for. That's kind of what the School of Theology is. So it started years ago with our uh, theology program. And how many of you went through the theology program? Yeah, a lot of you did. And it just, it really, there was like hundreds of us went through that. And it was just such a refreshing, I know so many of you just said, wow, this helps me understand my faith. It helps me love God. And that's really what this is about. <coughs> And so um, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to turn it over uh, to Ryan, and he is going to lead us in our study starting tonight. God, we thank you for the truth of you, the reality of you, and the fact that I cannot understand the fullness of you ever. Um, I'll never be able to understand, get to the end of you. Um, Father, it's, in, it's impossible for me being a finite being, cannot understand the infinite. But God, that doesn't mean I can't understand anything. I can. And that is a gift from you. And I'm grateful, Father, that instead of us, like lots of other people who look at the world around us or even look at the complexity within us, um, we do, we, we, we've been given more. We have been given your revelation, which I cannot discern with my mind and with my senses apart from what you have done. And so I'm thankful. 
uh, for your word, for your spirit, and for your people, which together help me have a better understanding and therefore a better response to you. And so I thank you, Father, for the giving of your Son and the sending of your Spirit, for your glory, for others' benefit, and for our joy. Uh, may this time truly be, Father, of, uh, of great value to us. And may you take joy in us thinking well about you. Where we're wrong, correct us. Uh, Father, where we're right, confirm it. Teach us humility and obedience and love. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I have intended, actually before we jump into that, how many of you came in late enough that you still need one of these? The Bell Sisters and Mr. DeBeast. Anthony, could you certainly distribute? Um, I, I intended to um, print out a schedule, but I forgot. And so the only thing that you really need to know is that this will be nine weeks in total, and the first Monday of October we will not meet. Um, all the ministers will be out of town um, Sunday afternoon through Wednesday, and so that first Monday of October we will not meet. Um, but otherwise we will be moving through uh, over the next nine weeks, and we'll be dealing with the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, back in our theology program days, we, um, they, they had a class on the Trinity. It was class three. I remember it because I remember it was the most frustrating of the six or seven or however many they ended up having. It was, it was very complicated. And those of you who went through class three, through Trinitarianism with the TTP program, you remember how just every night Every single Monday night was wading back into the weeds and gasping for air, trying to figure out what it is they're talking about. And I won't pretend like this isn't going to feel to some extent like that, because we are uh, finite beings trying to comprehend an infinite idea that is unique to an infinite being. So we are, we are grasshoppers trying to understand human beings, and the gap between us and grasshoppers is far, far smaller than the gap between us and God. So we even walk into this subject with a little bit of trepidation and, and, and a lot of humility, knowing that it's going to get thick quick. Um, but we'll see. I hope that we can see from tonight. My goal tonight is to convince you that it is nevertheless important to do so. Um, but before we get there, I want to actually have you guys do, before we answer the question, what is at stake? when we discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. I want to have you guys discuss a few questions at your table, just five minutes or less, because I really do want to be respectful of your time and have you guys out of here in, uh, in a decent time. Annetta has guests coming over who would like to study scripture at her house, so we're going to make sure that we allow that to happen. So for the next few minutes, I want you guys at your tables. We have enough people at each table. Eric and Meredith, you might have to jump in with somebody else. But uh, yeah, go over here with them. Um, I want you guys to discuss these two questions at your table. Um, first of all, when you describe the gospel, how often does the Trinity actually come up? And the second question, the follow-up question is, how different would your gospel presentation be if you never mentioned it at all? I want you at your tables to discuss the two, the two questions. When you talk about the gospel, does the Trinity ever come up? What would be missing, and would it change at all if you just ignored the idea of the Trinity altogether? Ready, set, go. <laughs> you guys need handouts? <laughs>
get a little bit of feedback. What were some of the, uh, we don't need to necessarily tell on ourselves, but what are some of the things that are coming up at our tables? <coughs> Audience matters. Okay, explain. You, you may have a different discussion with somebody who's um, not of your same faith mm. than, than you are. You may have one who's in a different place in their walk than you are. Right. So in the initial stages, sometimes if a conversation goes a salvation direction, your focus is going to be mostly on Jesus. Sure. So, but then later, you know, when you're hashing things out and you're trying to, under, you know, understand the whole role of the Holy Spirit and God and Jesus and how that plays into your life, it's a whole different discussion. Okay. So uh, there are times where we are just a little more narrow in the type of theology that we're discussing, and then other times it, it broadens up. Okay. What else? Am I sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, or am I talking about the gospel with other believers? Pick one. Really what do you do with an unbeliever? Uh, and perhaps that's, that, that might be the one I'm most interested in. Uh-huh. For instance, I, I could see how the Trinity is is near the front of the mind whenever we are trying to convert someone from Islam. An incredible difference between our monotheistic faith and their monotheistic faith. But say you're just trying to convert someone from humanism, from a selfish life. I, I don't now I think that the, the, the idea of the Trinity undergirds much of what I'm saying, but I don't know how overt talk of the Trinity actually is, at least initially, perhaps as Annette is saying. Yes, ma'am. Well, I know from my, we kind of talked about this, I didn't grow up in the Christian church, mm -hmm. so from my point of view, that was always something I was interested about, but people didn't necessarily talk about, because it's really hard to explain, so I always kind of, but that's just me, I'm a naturally curious person, so I always wanted to hear more. Sure. It wasn't necessarily that something that people really delved into. Raise your hand if you've got an airtight explanation of the Trinity. <laughs> There, there might be a reason that we shy away from it. Yeah. It's like, you're going to ask me questions I don't know the answer yeah. to. 
I'd rather talk about the cross. That's not so hard. <laughs> Let's um before we before we jump into any other thoughts on that before we we move on. Before we jump into some things that others have said about the Trinity, I know many of you are um, avid readers, and uh, I'll be making suggestions each week. I've, I've spent the last year um, buying up all the books on the Trinity that I could find that would be useful. Some of them are just terrible, so I don't even bother. But uh, wouldn't spend church money on such things. But the good ones I buy, and um, these two are wonderful. This one is brilliantly short and, uh, and, and deep. So it's, it's kind of, it packs a punch. It's like a Gideon's New Testament. It is um, Making Sense of the Trinity by Millard Erickson. Millard Erickson is a pretty famous systematic theologian. Um, he writes large, large books that cover the breadth of Christian doctrine. And this was just a, um, you know, less than 100 pages on, it's called Making Sense of the Trinity. He answers three crucial questions. I guess I could read the questions to you. Um, first question is is the doctrine of the trinity biblical the second one is does the doctrine of the trinity make sense and then the third question is actually the question that we have before us tonight is does the doctrine of the trinity make any difference which is uh, we're asking the same question we say what's at stake with the doctrine of the trinity so Millard Erickson making sense of the trinity great little book both of these could probably be picked up for pennies on the dollar used Amazon um, this one has been just incredible. He's got a couple of companion books that go deeper, but this is more of his popular level book, The Deep Things of God. How, and then the subtitle is How the Trinity Changes Everything by Fred Sanders. Fred Sanders is a um, systematics professor at Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And, uh, and he is kind of, I would say, the, the contemporary theologian who is doing the most work on holding this doctrine up and saying, no, this does matter. This is not just theory. This is not abstract ideas. These are, uh, the, the concept of the Trinity is very real and tangible for life in the church. Yes, sir. Fred Sanders. Fred Sanders. First one was Millard Erickson. Both of them good. Um, I forgot to print a schedule, but I will bring one next week because it has a list of our topics for the semester. Uh, one of the things that did frustrate me about the theology program is that it was, it was, and the Trinity just tends to be this. It's overly philosophical. We are making reasonable arguments and rational arguments about an idea, which is good and right and inescapable in the case of the Trinity. But um, what, what you run the risk of is you run the risk of ignoring the greatest wealth of information on the Trinity. That would be the scriptures. And so we are doing nine weeks on um, the, the Trinity this semester. We're only going to do one or two sessions at the most on the development of the doctrine throughout history. A la early church fathers and the Catholic Church, soon to be Roman Catholic Church, and then any changes that came after the Protestant Reformation. We're not going to give the, that, uh, that part of the church's history a lot of airtime. Not because it's unimportant, but because it's secondary. We're going to spend five to six weeks with our heads in our Bibles, finding the Trinity there. And I think that so many of the questions that we have about the Trinity um, rise up because we talk about it with our heads up instead of looking down into the scriptures. And so you're going to have, is it an Old Testament idea? Can you find the Trinity in the Old Testament? What do the Gospels say about the Trinity? What do the baptismal formulas in the book of Acts say about the Trinity? What does Paul say in his letters? What does John say in his letters and in his Gospel and in the Revelation? And then we'll come up for air and talk about how the early church wrestled with this. But I don't want to get there too quickly. I want to spend time in, in our book, the, the infallible stuff, before we get to all the, um, the very fallible human beings. So, we're asking the question, what's at stake? Um, here are a number of people that have given their thoughts. Robert Latham, I will show you his book next week. He's got a great book on the Trinity. He says this, For the vast majority of Christians, including most ministers and theological students, the Trinity is still a mathematical conundrum, full of imposing philosophical jargon, relegated to an obscure alcove, remote from daily life. 
And much of us, uh, much of our time is spent living as if the Trinity is a neat idea that we can put on the shelf. And I hope that our time tonight and in the coming semester can prove that that is precisely the opposite of what the Trinity is. Immanuel Kant, who was not necessarily a friend of the church, though he, was, he did bring a lot of good questions to the fore, he said this, from the doctrine of the Trinity, taken literally, nothing whatsoever can be gained for practical purposes. Even if one believes that one comprehended it, and less still if one is conscious that it surpasses all our concepts. He says, whether or not you believe you understand it or you recognize that you can't understand it, it is altogether irrelevant for life in the church. And many of us would say, I, I know I'm not supposed to agree with guys like Kant, but um, I kind of feel that way. Carl Rayner is a 20th century um, Catholic scholar. He said this, we must be willing to admit that should the doctrine of the Trinity have to be dropped as false, the major part of religious literature could well remain virtually unchanged. So back to the question, how often do you, when you present the gospel, have an opportunity to talk about the Trinity, and what would your gospel presentation look like if you left the Trinity out? He's saying it probably wouldn't look that much different. Functionally, it doesn't mean much for life in the church. St. Augustine thought differently, though. This is, I mean, he wrote... I'd love to just assign this book and go through it together. He wrote an enormous treatise on the Trinity. Um, not that he was altogether right in everything that he said, but uh, it was good. He says, further, let me ask of my reader, wherever, alike with myself, he is certain there to go on with me. He says, well, we agree, let's go. Wherever, alike with myself, he hesitates there to join with me in inquiring. Let's ask good questions. Wherever he recognizes himself to be in error, there to return to me. And wherever he recognizes me to be so, there to call me back. So that we may enter together upon the path of charity and advance towards him of whom it is said, seek his face evermore. And I would make this pious and safe agreement in the presence of our Lord God with all who read my writings. This is really the preface to his big, big book on the Trinity. With all who read my writings, as well in, as, in, as well in other cases as, above all, in the case of those which inquire into the unity of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because in no other subject is error more dangerous, or inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more profitable. And I love that last line. He said, when you plumb the depths of the Trinity, you are probably on the razor's edge from becoming a heretic. And it's hard work, and it's worth it. I didn't put him on here because I wouldn't give him the satisfaction, but I love Drew Moss's saying about the Trinity. <laughs> he says, the minute you believe you have figured out the Trinity, you're likely a heretic the church condemned several hundred years ago. There is a mystery to it that we need to, to appreciate, and yet I don't think that that means we should fear it. Sinclair Ferguson, in, uh, a British theologian and preacher, he says, I've often reflected on the rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. Preparing to go and die and leave this earth and leave the church in the hands of spirit-led men and women. He spent a lot of time talking to them about who the Father was and that the Spirit would come and that it's better that he leave. He's talking about the Trinity. You know, I, I, it's interesting because we think that the reason why is because we just don't have an opportunity to have right, the right information. So I think many of us, or at least maybe I'm just speaking for myself, I just think, well, when I get to heaven, then I'll understand it, right? So the problem is an information problem instead of a, like, my container will never be able to understand it. It's, it's just, it's too big. Yeah. And so, so often the, the reason why we get into trouble is that we take this, which is infinite, and then we begin to put it into this, which is finite, and it, I don't know if it's ever supposed to fit. And so I think sometimes we think it might be sin, or it might be, um, the, you know, kind of a 
on this side of eternity, but I would argue we will never fully comprehend how to understand or explain the Trinity. And that's, for me personally, you've heard me say this, that's the difference between understanding and worship sometimes, mm -hmm. is that when I enter into that which I cannot fathom, it really humbles me yeah. and causes me to worship instead of explain. You will have eternity. The, the, the arrow of time goes forever forward. And should you selfishly dominate the Lord's time and not let the rest of us talk to him, and just ask him every single question you could ever think of from now until forever, you'll never get to the end of him. You will never get to the end of him. He's by definition infinite. And, and we will, though in our perfection, remain finite. We're not going to become transcendent. We're going to become glorified. But there's a difference. He will always be infinitely transcendent. You'll never get to the end of him. So this is, this is an interesting document, or an interesting doctrine, because, so what are we talking about it for? If we can never get to the end of it? And I think Jim makes a good point. I don't know if complete understanding is the point. It can't be the point, because it's not possible. It's, it might be to revel in his majesty, to sing better on Sunday mornings, to read the scriptures with more awe, and reverence. Maybe to not get it as wrong. Yeah. Let's be less wrong. Let's, if, if, if all we do is take everyone from mild heretic to orthodox believer, I think we've won. We've moved the ball down the field. So, um, and, and what we're not going to do tonight is we're not going to define the Trinity. Um, next week we'll start talking about very important terms and we'll start to deal with um, orthodox and unorthodox. I love hearing Anthony still reflect on a conversation I don't even really necessarily remember having with him, but apparently he was a heretic at one point when I he came. Was. It was? was a horrible time of <laughs> So we got to have a great conversation, and, and Anthony, who, who has solid doctrine in the first place, gets to chip away a little bit of immaturity and grow in this area. And yet I wouldn't say that it moves him, you know, all the way down the field. It's just, nope, this is just a little bit of growth in us. And that's the goal for this semester, is in this area, we're going to grow a little bit. So I think it's, it's interesting that the, the uh, opinions on the Trinity are kind of run the gamut. But Fred Sanders, in his book, The Deep Things of God, he asked this question. This is kind of the premise of his book. And, uh, and I think it's an interesting question to ask. He says, how has it come about that so many evangelicals today are cold toward the doctrine of the Trinity, confused by its meaning, or non-committal about its importance. And there might be, one of those might describe you. You're cold towards it. It's really not on your radar. You're confused by it. You know, I want to ask, but every time I ask, I get the runaround. Or... I, you know, I just not, it's not a hill that I'm really going to die on because I, I, I don't know how to defend that which I don't understand. And, and yet, I hope that we can see that it is very, very important. So let's, let's start working through our notes. These are some of the concerns that we as evangelicals have concerning Trinitarianism. First of all, we ask the question, is the Trinity relevant? How well does this doctrine actually work? And how is it practical? Now, on the one hand, I don't like that question. And on the other hand, it's actually kind of the point of this class. So how relevant is the Trinity? Um, that question is, uh, if, we, if we just kind of step back for a second, that question is a little egocentric. As if my understanding of its relevance to me is some way to measure its value or its importance. Can I even make the decision what is and isn't relevant? I wonder if I should be asking the question, am I relevant to the Trinity? Because there's one of us. There's the Trinity and then there's me. And one of us is unchanging and perfect and the other one is me. And I'm asking, is it relevant to me? And there's just a mild, if not blatant, arrogance in that kind of question. There is a, a firm 
um, attestation to the Trinity in Scripture, which immediately makes it relevant. And relevance is such an interesting idea because uh, I could take like a little watercolor brush. My kids have these all over my house. I step on them and break them all the time. They're leaving these little watercolor brushes everywhere. These like Crayola plastic brushes. Now last week, um, me and a couple of others went out to help someone who's trying to move paint their house. And I could have taken that little paintbrush and said, is this relevant to the task that we have to do? No. We're not going to paint this house with this tiny little watercolor brush that was 98 cents at Walmart. It's not relevant to that. Um, for the vast majority of the time you're actually wearing it, a parachute is not relevant. For most of your fall, it's actually impeding the fall and causing you to have lots of additional turbulence in the air. But at the end, it's incredibly relevant. All of a sudden, that's very important. So if I go on a five minute free fall, the first four and a half minutes, that parachute means nothing. But ultimately, it will mean something. It's very, very relevant. I wonder if at some point we will come to the conclusion that the Trinity is all of a sudden quite relevant to our lives. We, we could ask the, the, the question, are doctrinal distinctions important, helpful, or desirable? big trend I see in, in, inside the church, so never mind the antagonists, but inside the church is a trend towards unity at all costs. At all costs. Meaning, if we, if we all love and claim Jesus, then we should, we should get rid of any and all obstacles. Why are we, why are we getting hung up on distinctions? Um... Maybe another case of ego gone wild. I don't know if it's my call to decide what is and isn't important. But I would, all, I would ask the follow-up question to someone who said, that, I don't know if the doctrine of the Trinity is really that important, if we should be making a big deal out of differences between how you believe the doctrine of the Trinity and how I do. I would just say, okay, like what kind of doctrines are we, are we drawing distinctions over? Like, you do know you have all the freedom in the world to believe um, wrong things, and I'm allowed to bring, believe wrong things about the tribulation. Whether or not you or I are going to go through it, or when it'll happen, or what it's going to look like. We have all the freedom in the world to, to kind of argue over what that might be, and to come to different conclusions, and to hold fellowship with one another. And to sing praises to the Lord Jesus on Sunday, side by side. We can believe differently about that. One of, I mean, when we believe differently, one of us is wrong, maybe both of us. But it really doesn't make much of a difference. But is that the same level of doctrine as the Trinity? And I would say no. There are a handful of doctrines that when they bubble to the top, um, you really don't have the option to hold different views in these areas than what the scriptures teach and what the church has historically taught and those things, I, I, I'm tying them together because they're, they're actually more important than you might think so doctrinal distinctions are important, they are helpful, they are desirable in some cases not in all now we might say um, isn't, isn't following Jesus more about kindness, about doing the right thing? Shouldn't we take care of one another's feelings? What if I just really love Jesus? Doesn't that count for something? What if, I, what if I'm not, you know, you could argue over whether or not I'm thinking clearly or my doctrine is good, but I love Jesus. And I do, I, I'm faithful to my wife, I, I take care of my kids, I do all the responsible things. Doesn't that count for something? I'm a good like highly contributing member of society and I love Jesus. Counts for a lot, right? Um, how do you decide how to feel or how to behave? I hope you'll see that in most of these questions um, if you want to push the Trinity to the side you're really cutting your own legs out from beneath you. The Trinity will undergird just about everything that we do in the church. 
Can your ethics, can what you do, or how you feel, can it really matter if it's untethered from right belief? I know many, many non-Christians who are far nicer and do way better things for society than I ever will. So, that middle question there is, if we insist on the doctrine of the Trinity, and I, I hope you see that I am, at what point does it contribute to the spiritual well-being of Christians and churches? What's at stake? So, the state of our Trinitarian doctrine. Let's, look, let's do a little bit of analysis on where we are. First, our Trinitarianism has become out of sight, out of mind. In other words, it's largely forgotten. We go about our daily business without hardly a thought bent at the Trinity. And, and I have to speak in general terms here, right? So some of you are saying, oh, I think about the, the, the triune God every minute of the day. Great, I'm happy for you. But by and large, he's out of sight, out of mind. The church has reduced this. This really has, uh, the, the idea of the Trinity has become for many of us what it unfortunately is in most of my systematic theology books. It's just chapter 14. It amazes me, actually. In most of my systematic theology texts, they get to the concept of the Trinity way, way, way in the back. And I'm just sitting here thinking, all your foundational material is here. How do you write 13 chapters before you get to this? It's we have, I mean, they have their reasons. They're intelligent men and women, right? So I, I get it. But there's something about the fact that we, we tend to bury this subject way in the back. It's just another item on a checklist. It's If you give me a list of the 43 most important beliefs of uh, what Christians ought to believe, it'll be somewhere between 1 and 30. That's the trinity for us. It's out of sight, out of mind. But whenever we, get, whenever we present the gospel... Don't we talk about that life shaped by the gospel is life lived in communion with the triune God? Don't we talk about the Spirit descending on the believer? Don't we talk about salvation coming through the work of Jesus Christ? Don't we talk about forgiveness being imparted to us from the Father? Don't we talk about the Trinity early on? And then we just move on. Like I call, say I have a gospel presentation for St. Anthony over here. Um, I tell him that you are separated from the God of the universe. And that there is a path for you to have a restored fellowship with him. He's very personal. That's how I talk. And, and the spirit will come on you and the grace comes through the work of Christ. And the father will forgive you. And then chapter 14. We park it and we move on. We, um, when the Trinity becomes out of sight, out of mind, when we forget about the Trinity, we forget why we do what we do. Because we forget who we are as Christians who are created by the gospel, and we forget how we got to be like we are. We, we, we. I will cut us some slack because when I say we forget, I, I mean we all of a sudden presuppose the Trinity in all of our conversations. But at some point we stop speaking of the Trinity explicitly. We don't celebrate the Trinity, we don't teach about the Trinity, and we don't worship the Trinity. We pick our favorite member, usually Jesus, and we run with it. And there's just something stunted about that. Now, the Bible lifts Jesus up as pretty important, right? So let's not feel bad about that. But the Bible lifts Jesus up as a member of the Godhead. And I'm not even saying that the playing field has to be equal. The Spirit doesn't, isn't necessarily interested in as much attention as we might want to give it if we just play 33% across the board. But we forget about the Trinity a lot. And when we don't... The second point here is that I believe our Trinitarianism has become shallow. 
Um, this is a wonderful little passage where Fred Sanders articulates his concern for this lack of depth. He says this. <clears throat> the evangelical movement is booming, but it often seems to be 10 miles wide and half an inch deep. This shallowness is not only how things look from the outside to the cultured despisers of evangelical religion. It also describes the way many evangelicals feel about their own churches and spiritual lives. Many evangelicals seem haunted by a sense of not being about anything except the moment of conversion. That line is particularly damning. Many evangelicals seem haunted by a sense of not being about anything except the moment of conversion. He explains further. When they stop to ask themselves where they are taking their converts, they fear that when they get there, there will be no there there. When they sense that God is calling them to a deeper communion with him, they are unable to say what that would be. After all, you can't get any more saved than saved. Our gospels have become anemic. When serious-minded evangelical Christians feel the desire to go deeper into doctrine or spirituality, they typically turn to any resources except for their own properly evangelical resources. A strange alienation of affection sets in. They cast about for something beyond what they already have, which leads them to look for something beyond the gospel. What sounded like such glad good news at the outset, free forgiveness in Christ, begins to sound like elementary lessons that should have been left behind on the way to advanced studies. What they embraced as the sum of wisdom when they first turned to God, cultivate a personal relationship with Jesus by reading your Bible, praying, and going to church, that begins to sound like Sunday school answers that never quite address the right questions. What has gone wrong when evangelicalism not only looks shallow from the outside, but feels shallow from the inside? He said, we talk about the Trinity up front, but once we convert them, we have no use for the Trinity anymore. And we wonder what we, you should live a gospel-centered life. I talk like that all the time. Your life should, should reflect the gospel. I, half the time, I'm not even sure what I mean by that. And he says it's because we've become shallow in our, tri in our Trinitarianism. What is our gospel life all about? The gospel is so triune. The deeper we go, the deeper we plumb the mystery of the Trinity. The more you study the gospel, the more Trinitarian you will become. Um, the more you study the gospel, the more you'll discover the character of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I, I know some of you read these books with us this summer, um, but I, I would encourage you to write this book, write the, this title down. The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer is just a worshipful deep dive into the character of God that never really mentions the Trinity outright. So, a little bit of my concern. But... All it does is go on and on about the beauty of God and how that cascades down through the gospel. And, and I remember reading that with five or six guys this summer and just feeling an overwhelming sense of worship every time I cracked that book open. Like I was experiencing a triune moment whenever I would study who God was, who he is. So uh, the state of our Trinitarian doctrine is, with broad strokes, forgotten or out of sight, out of mind, and a little shallow. So I, I just want to answer these, these few questions. What's at stake? Responding to the relevance accusation, the Trinity is relevant to the problem of evil. We talked a bit about the problem of evil last semester in apologetics. Um, the problem of evil is, is complicated to solve, and I don't know that I'm able to solve it. I don't know that human beings are able to solve it. But I can give some encouraging answers on the subject. Um, the incarnation helps me understand at least God's disposition towards evil. And it's not this transcendent, sovereign, out-of-the-way, look-at-them-struggle posture. 
It's a, I'm going to get into this with them. I'm going to put on flesh, and I'm going to become as weak as I possibly can, and I'm going to endure the very same world that my, my beloved children live in. And if he incarnates, then he will one day go to the cross. And on that cross, he will enact what's known as the atonement. And the atonement is important because God deals with evil by... You'll have to forgive the phrase because we just really don't have a better way to describe it. By going suicidal. Like he, doesn't, he doesn't get murdered by the devil. He kills himself. Jesus is in absolute control. He wasn't really murdered as much as he sacrificed himself to himself. So you could look at the cross and say, wow, that doesn't seem just. God really didn't deal with the problem of humanity. He just killed a man. But of course we know that he was more than a man. He was God. A Trinitarian understanding of the atonement and a Trinitarian understanding of the incarnation tells me much more about how God deals with evil, how he deals with sin, and how he will fix all of it. Puts himself on the chopping block to deal with it. The problem of evil is a fun uh, is usually the, the the spot where opponents of Christianity will allege that God is not ethical. Look at all the injustices that He permits. Look at all the hurricanes He lets ravage the southern U.S. And I just have to look to the incarnation and the atonement to say He's far more ethical and far more just and far more compassionate than you'll give Him any credit for. And a deep understanding of the Trinity helps. The Trinity, second one, distinguishes Christianity from other religions. Yes. And you get to ask the question, uh, what, what, if, so if you're, if you're engaging with someone who adheres to another faith, you're constantly asking the question, um, are we monotheistic or polytheistic? Some would accuse us of being strict monotheists, like Allah. Um, some would accuse us of being polytheists, like maybe Hinduism, or if they're very charitable, tritheists. Of course, we know the Bible really doesn't give any. It says that we're monotheistic, but it's it's a it's a unique kind of monotheism. It's actually a real kind of monotheism. Every other kind is, by definition, false. It is the real monotheism that has a plurality inside of it. It has a unity and a plurality. A unity and a diversity is, I think, probably the best way to describe the Trinity. God is altogether one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And yet, the Godhead is diverse. When you're engaging with someone who adheres to another religion, you also ask the question, is your God remote or is he near? Is he transcendent or is he imminent? And of course, most religions have to pick one. We don't. This is the wonderful thing about Christianity. We get all the good stuff and leave all the bad stuff. He is both transcendent and very near. How? Well, let me explain to you the concept of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Godhead in his fullness walked around on the earth. The Godhead in his fullness animates the church and lives inside each one of us. The Godhead in his fullness created the cosmos and, and manages it with all of his sovereign providence. He is both far and near. Distinct and very, very close. The Trinity is, this is the third one, deeply involved in our liturgy. By this I mean how we worship. To whom do you pray? Through whom do you pray? And by whom do you pray? If Jesus modeled anything and said you should pray to the Father, doesn't mean I think, I really don't find that it's inappropriate to pray to Jesus or to the Spirit, but when he was asked, Jesus said pray like this, pray to the Father. And Jesus is our mediator, the one who makes our words fit to tickle the ears of the Father. And the prayers that we utter come from the Spirit. The, the way you understand these things is incredibly triune. 
When you sing songs on Sunday, are you offering some sort of service to God to make Him happy? I really don't think so. I think God in His majesty has made us fit through Jesus to sing His praises as the Spirit works on us as we proclaim these truths together. It's incredibly triune. The Trinity, four, defines every human relationship that you and I have. Every human relationship that you and I have is defined by the Trinity. In the Trinity, we see perfect relationship, perfect love, perfect community. In the Trinity, we have the one um, that, that gave us His image. And so we relate to one another as the Trinity has demonstrated that we should relate. We do community. We will rule like He has asked us to. And we will resemble Him in our character. The Trinity gives dignity to humanity, gives value to humanity, and ontologically equality. So at the core of our being, um, if, you, if, you, if you look at our, the essence of who we are, that's our ontos, our ontology. We are ontologically equal, like the Trinity. And then functionally or economically, we're diverse, like the Trinity. There are so many fun facets to investigate when you look at the idea that we were made in his image. He is ontologically one, economically plural and distinct. You and I all have the same value at our core, and yet Anna and I are very different. Finally, the Trinity is the deepest truth that defines every biblical belief that you hold. Now, you might, find, you might believe that that's an overstatement. Right? Isn't that a little bit of ministerial hyperbole? I don't think so. I don't know what biblical belief you hold that isn't ultimately defined and set in motion by the Trinity. Now, um, where we get into trouble is, as evangelicals, one of the things that we're really good at is finding the things we ought to emphasize. So Aneta even pointed this out. There are things, so if I, if I have a limited amount of time or a new relationship with someone, I'll focus on really Jesus and his work and on the cross. And, and, and one of the things that we're really good at, and I think it's helpful, is that we know what to emphasize. We know what to emphasize. Um, we will talk all about how God reveals himself. How he speaks revelation. But you, eventually we just get to the point where God speaks through his Bible. How does God speak? Well, he speaks through prophets and he speaks through dreams. And he, what he says goes and he's, he's truthful to a fault. And he's, his words are, are powerful and there's, there's no error. God cannot tell a lie. And we just say, well, actually you should just read your Bible. That's, that's the evangelical answer. How do you know what God wants you to do? Well, you reach your Bible. Um, we talk about Jesus coming. And, you know, the Gospels really talk about Jesus making all things new or making them whole. Now, I put it that way because that's what he really does in his ministry. He goes around, he heals people, makes them whole. He forgives people, makes them whole. He pulls them up out of poverty, makes them whole. He raises them from the dead. He makes them whole. We are constantly talking about his redemptive work. And when we boil it down as evangelicals, we just shorthand that with Jesus came and died on the cross. He died on the cross. We talk about all of the... Um, so if you think about what, what the process of becoming a saved person is, well, first of all, we're justified. And then we go into the process of being sanctified. And one day we will all be glorified. But if we talk about what it means to be saved, we eventually as evangelicals just get to our conversion. We love to summarize. We love to emphasize. We love shorthand. And I don't even think that's bad. This is, these are some of the things that we love. 
When you talk about all of the good gifts, I'm going to call it the goodness of Jesus, all of the holiness that comes with knowing Jesus, all the right relationships that now form as a result of Jesus' work, all the, the blessings that we have in the church and the eternity we have with him, that eventually, as evangelicals, gets distilled down into heaven. And if I had to pick four words that are our favorites as evangelicals, it would be, we believe in the Bible, and we really love Jesus' work on the cross. And I would hope that you would experience conversion so that you can go to heaven. That's probably the core of our gospel call. I don't even think it's bad. I think it's probably good. I think it's even necessary at times. But you do know like, there's no way for us to, to uh, highlight certain things, to draw emphasis to certain ideas, if we're not doing so by pulling from larger swaths of information. And all I'm asking is, if you keep following the, the funnels up, where do you end up? The Trinity defines every one of these things. The Trinity undergirds every single biblical belief that you have. Emphasis requires the larger body of truth to be to, to, to select from. Now, here's my, my concern. What happens when we go overly reductionist on it and we think that we're no longer highlighting things, but this is the whole message? Read your Bible, believe in the cross, experience conversion, and go to heaven. You end up with shallow evangelicals that no longer have the ability to talk well about the Trinity. We've forgotten the, the large swath of knowledge and revelation from God that we're working from. And it's, it's this oversimplification doesn't win anybody, or at best produces very stunted disciples. Very, very stunted disciples. Key points um, that have now become the whole truth. Now there is like biblical precedent for the simplified version of it. I'll leave you guys with a few readings. When, when Paul is jailed in Philippi, and you know this incredible experience where the jails are thrown open and the Philippian jailer is freaking out. He doesn't know what he's about to do. He's lost all his prisoners. Capital crime in his world. And Paul says, hey, don't worry about it. We're still here. And then eventually he asks, hey, what, what must I do to be saved? Paul gives him the summary. Acts 16, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. He goes with the summary stuff. Now, but Paul would never say, that's it. Paul is having a moment that like, Annette described earlier, where there are times where we have to summarize, times where we have to be selective, and just take the high points. That if you want to hear Paul talk about the gospel in a beautiful and profound way, go to Ephesians 1. One of the most trying passages you'll find. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father, there's one, of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's two, who has blessed us in Christ, there he is again, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things to in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's three. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In Acts 16, Paul can give you the summary statement. He can give you the high points. But Paul knows that there is a wealth of beauty about who God is. And that's what he's drawing from when he has an opportunity to explain the gospel. What must I do to be saved? Well, if in a pinch, just believe in Jesus and you and your household will be saved. What, what should I write to a church that really needs to understand the gospel? It's going to be this beautiful triune explanation of what he's done for us. Um, you'll, you'll think this is weird because I hid a knife in the room, but I think the explanation will be helpful. Um, the, the high points... This is the one. Yeah. The, the high points are helpful because they cut quickly. They're the edge of the knife. The edge of the knife is incredibly helpful. It needs to be sharp, and it needs to be small in order to cut well. But you know it does nothing without the big chunk of metal behind it. Like your, your high points, if, they, if your summary of the gospel is all you've ended up with, if it's all you have regarding who God is, it's just, it, eventually it's ineffective. The, the blade on its own, the edge, does nothing without the big metal weight behind it. And that's what the Trinity is. Sitting behind every biblical belief you have is this imposing, incredible doctrine that God is both three and one. That he's both unified and diverse. That he's both imminent and incredibly transcendent. And I think that it shapes everything that we do. And I'm looking forward to the next eight weeks of discussing how that actually plays out and how your beliefs um, can be tested against the truthfulness of Scripture and that the Trinity is in there and it is the standard, it is the bar that determines everything else. So that's what we'll do. Uh, next week we're going to have fun because I tried really hard to stay away from descriptions of the Trinity tonight. I know it's a, to some extent impossible. But I didn't want to go through any of the common ways we talk about the Trinity because next week we're going to start talking about analogies and their limits. And we're going to start defining really important theological terms. This is the school of theology after all. We're not going to shy away from big words. We're going to actually find them um, on purpose. I think that they can be helpful. Um, we don't do big words for big words sake, but we do big words because God is worth our efforts. Hey, Ryan, speaking of big words, uh -huh. can you explain what you meant by the, the ontology and the economy? Okay. Um, the ontology of God is his, the, the core of his essence. It is the, after you get to the part where you cannot reduce it any further, that is God. That's the core of his being. Father, Son, and Spirit, there's no distinction in their ontology. They are one. There's no plurality in their ontology. You can't divide them any further. They aren't composed of parts. There's not a Jesus God and a Holy Spirit God and a Father God that you put them together and they make a super God. They are one. Economically, ask the question, and when you're talking about someone's economy, you're asking, how do they interact with things? And that's where it is three persons. And this is where it really is going to become fun, and, and we'll, we'll save it towards the end of the, the semester, asking the question, how did we come up with the, the term person, and why? who believed this was helpful? Because it's frustrating. I can even see it on a lot of our faces. That, wait, person and being, what's the difference? Uh, it was plenty of difference to get several people kicked out of the church. So like, they had to make some decisions. And, and, and in the case of the Trinity, they had to invent terms to, make, to measure distinctions. You won't find the word Trinity in Scripture. You won't find God being described as persons, as in terms of the Trinitarian doctrine, in Scripture. Theologians had to look at the Scriptures, and they're remaining as faithful as they can, and say, we need a new language. 
We need a new dictionary to talk about this. And if, if there would be any other subject where that would be appropriate, it would be where we're plumbing the depths of the infinite God of the universe. At some point, we're going to have to say, okay, we have to make up some words. Um, let's call it a person or a persona. Or a, actually, the, the, the reason that we called the class um, the triune God instead of the Trinity, um, a triunity is actually the technical term. We just, we just contracted it down to Trinity. But they are saying there's three that are unified. A triunity is the technical term for um, the Trinity. So uh, 